The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. Ready? Okay. Well, welcome to uh, the third lecture. A uh, quick review of what we did last time in the first slide. We talked about purification not of basically at every level uh, of the hierarchy in complexity from the elements all the way up to organisms. And in particular, the awesome purification what can contain get by uh, serial dilution down to single molecules, recombinant DNA molecules in this case, embedded in uh, E. coli cells. And how this purification led to a re revolution, um, first, pure, pure, first in biochemistry, then recombinant DNA, molecular biology, then led to the Genome Project and Systems Biology, which brings us to models of interconnections. And one of the uh, to start in with algorithms that are useful in systems biology, we start with one of the simplest and most robust ones, which is the genetic code shown here in the <coughs> lower right-hand corner. But as one looks at the, the huge diversity of, in the tree of life, you find examples to, of uh, exceptions to almost everything you can come up with, including the genetic code. And we, and we talked about how to cherish the exceptions as usual here. And then getting back to systems biology in terms of how one creates qualitative and quantitative models for func from functional genomics data and establishes evidence. Finally, we ended on mutations and selection as we have been, uh, we will do in all three lectures here. This, this lecture in particular will focus on mutations and selection. So what is today's uh, menu? We'll start with types of mutants um, and how they're represented for bioinformatic uh, uh, purposes. We'll talk about uh, what the three main methods by which mutations occur, drift, and, and, and select so that you can determine these things determine the frequency of different alleles in populations. In doing that, we'll uh, rely on our friend from the first lecture, the binomial distribution, in the context of uh, an exponentially uh, growing population. We have uh, then give you some very practical uh, training here on association studies where we uh, illustrate it with a very important uh, example uh, of HIV resistance and, a, and a, a very useful statistic, easily as useful as the binomial and the Gaussian, the chi-square statistic. And then we'll continue to talk about association in the context of um, causative alleles, and the uh, importance of getting haplotypes and then technologies that are required that have been used to get the, the framework first genome and how one might change strategy in getting subsequent genomes uh, in order to make cost-effective these very uh, large association studies. And finally, in the context of that, we'll talk about uh, random and systematic errors in more detail, so you get lots of examples and ways of dealing with it computationally. So just to go from our brief discussion about the 
our friend the the uh, 100% uh, DNA ad- sequence identity or amino acid sequence identity that you might find in uh, the lens protein and, and enolase uh, enzyme, we, we, we can see that even at 100% you can find differences in function and so functional measures are a, are a good uh, adjunct to uh, DNA or amino acids identity. At 99.9% Identity. We're talking about the level of single nucleotide polymorphisms that might exist between any two uh, positions in your mother and your father's chromosomes in your body, or the differences between one of your genomes and one of my genomes. About once every kilobase, there will be a, a polymorphism, a difference, uh, a, often a single nucleotide, an A for a G. Then, as we go to 98%, differences, then we're talking about the differences between one of our genomes and a chimpanzee genome. In other words, a completely different genus and species. However, by the criterion we mentioned in a previous lecture about bacterial definitions of species, those would be almost identical, and you'd have to go to differences, um, uh, identities less than 70% in order to call it a new bacterial species. So you can see that this is a, a very soft number, very dependent upon uh, the context and the, and the uh, branch of the tree of life that you're working with. Then uh, we have uh, s- sequence homology and very distant homologs, which are only detectable, as we'll see when we get to the proteomic section of this course, are only detectable um, by three-dimensional structures, not by sequence. And that, that switchover between se- sequence homology will be the, t- the topic of uh, next lecture, um, and the very distant one uh, in 3D structures will be later in proteomics. But that occurs at about uh, 25 to 30%. Uh, this is just a, a, in, uh, a reminder and an introductory slide to the next slide. We have the different types of phenotypic, different phenotypic effects due to different types of mutations. And uh, ignoring the phenotypes that we talked about before, you have the types of mutations, classes are null mutations, uh, dosage, conditional mutations, gain of function, altered ligand specificity. Now, each, now that's in broad terms, colloquial, but how is this achieved on a uh, more molecular level and how do we represent it compactly for bioinformatic discussion? So we have uh, single substitutions. These can be a, a single base pair, an AT base pair to a CG base pair or a GC base pair to a TA base pair, and so on. Um, there can be deletions and duplications. Uh, these can range, the deletion or duplication can be as large as a chromosome or as small as a single base pair. You can delete that A rather than change it into a C, and uh, that would be one base pair. <coughs> a ver- so when you delete an entire chromosome that's called aneuploidy, the, the example on the previous slide was trisomy 21. Um, if you remove that chromosome 21 instead of dupl- having uh, three copies of it, it would be monosomy. And these have huge uh, consequences, to, um, even though they're fairly subtle changes in dosage. Now, a special class of deletion and duplication occurs when you have a, a tandem repeat of a sequence. When you have... Uh, anywhere from a, a single base repeat, AAAA, or dinucleotide, trinucleotide, all the way up, uh, 
those have a tendency, uh, uh, a very high tendency for, for both forward and reverse uh, uh, mutation, both deletions and duplications. Because at the very small level, you have polymerase slippage and other uh, 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 sort of microscopic events. And then uh, at the larger level, you have some kind of some kind of recombination, often homologous recombination that occurs that cause deletions and duplications of tandem repeats. Now, an inversion here, uh, this is, we're representing a complicated chemical event, which involves double-stranded DNA going 5' prime to 3' prime on the top strand from left to right, and 5' prime to 3' prime on the bottom strand going from right to left. And you're taking a little chunk of that and flipping it so that you break some bonds and remake them. Uh, all the 5' prime to 3' prime is, cons is conserved, but you've uh, done a, a reverse complement of the top strand and the bottom strand. And that reverse complement, you basically turn C's into G's and change the order. <coughs> this is sometimes abbreviated, you know, for, for simple genetic description, where let's say we inverted CDE, you might change the case or add primes to it, um, color it, in, in some way or another you indicate that it's now a reverse complement, and of course the gene order or the DNA segment order is, in, is, uh, is reversed to indicate that inversion. Uh, Translocations, insertions, and recombination have in common that you will make a break somewhere and then you will bring in a new piece of DNA. Just like the inversion where you, where you invert in, in place, here you involve something acting at, at more of a distance. Uh, you'll break between B and C and X and Y and you'll, uh, uh, in this case, do a reciprocal uh, translocation where you conserve all the DNA, and uh, A and B is now next to Y and Z. An insertion is, is like that, but now the DNA um, need not be reciprocal in any sense. It can come in more or less from outer space. Uh, here it came from Greece. Um, it, it, can, it, uh, it, can, it can be a transposable element that... Uh, uh, that uh, came in from who knows where and inserted in between the A and B. Recombination here, uh, illustrated is homologous recombination, and uh, you can have non-homologous recombination, but this is, this is by far the most uh, common and interesting. Even some non-homologous recombination involves short regions of homology, where you basically have two, either two sister chromosomes uh, or you know, homologs from mother and father, or uh, paralogs within the genome where you've got a duplicated gene that might even be on the same chromosome arm. And now, just as with the deletions of duplication where you have tandem repeats, you can, if you have repeats anywhere in the genome, you can um, take a small difference. Uh, we're emphasizing the similarities here, but they have a few small differences allow you to track them. Uh, those can be exchanged by single-strand or double-stranded uh, DNA uh, various chemistries. And you can, you can either uh, do a nice reciprocal exchange here where you preserve all the DNA and the little c gets, gets re, uh, replacing the big C by some kind of crossover between D and E, somewhere between C and F. Or you can have a, a non-reciprocal exchange where you pick up a little bit of C um, and duplicate it and now there's no big C left over and only little c, called gene conversion. But you get the idea that the, these are fairly exhaustive list of the kinds of mutations, the kinds of simple elementary mutations you can have. Now you can 
pile these in various combinations with each other, and over long periods of time, you can get completely new sequences. Uh, there's even ways that you can get de novo synthesis of, of DNA, such as uh, mechanisms of terminal transferase, which is used. Yes? What are the uh, we're going to get to that a little bit later on, but I can give you a preview. It's, uh, this, uh, in, say, in human genome, uh, these point mutations occurred about uh, 10 to the minus 8 um, per base pair per generation. And uh, there are deletions and duplications, especially in tandem regions, can be as much as six orders of magnitude higher frequency than that. Um, so, so there's a huge variation from position to position and types of alleles that will determine the mutation rate. And you should be quite uh, aware of that as you go through uh, various computational exercises. Okay, this is just a, a bit of uh, uh, kind of commonly accepted nomenclature is that mutations and polymorphisms are basically the same thing. They're differences between you and me. Uh, they become polymorphisms, meaning, you know, when they're, when they're common alleles, when their frequency is greater than 1% in a population. This is common in the human uh, genome community. It, it may differ for other ones. But this, this is roughly where you, a mutation, which is rare, less than 1%, becomes a polymorphism, which is frequent, more than 1%. As a counterpoint to that, I would, I would say that uh, there is a good chance that every possible single nucleotide polymorphism that could exist does exist. In a population as large as ours, uh, and mutation rates which are uh, modest, but still over long periods of time, allow the accumulation of mutations such that rather than having maybe three million common single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs, um, we might have 12 billion, one at every position. And we'll, in a lighter slide, we'll actually go through and calculate crudely, um, just how many, just what those frequent, why the frequency should be around 10 to the minus 5, and why there should be about uh, 10,000 of us representing each of these uh, so-called rare alleles. They're rare individually, but they're common as a, as a group. Uh, it will make a difference as to whether we're talking about whether these polymorphisms are linked to your favorite trait, or whether they actually cause it, whether they're part of the cause. No, uh, you know, no particular one can be said to be one-to-one -one with a cause. It's, it's all a collection of mutations and environment. Now, haplotypes. What do we mean by haplotypes? We've introduced SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms. If you have uh, a SNP that causes, let's say, is involved in, in causing a um, APOE4, we'll introduce in just a moment, a an allele that is associated with uh, increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. And let's say that protein has, it, it has a known change in the protein uh, three-dimensional structure, uh, and in it you can call that the bad allele, okay, or the associated allele. Now, if that were allele were, uh, that protein were expressed at a low level, for example, if you had a promoter mutation or enhancer mutation, then that haplotype, that combination of promoter mutation and protein mutation is, is, is a significant, more significant predictor than either one of them separately. And the fact that they're on the same chromosome is important because if the, the, the promoter enhancer that determines the, the level of the protein is in cis, meaning on the same DNA or in trans, makes a, a huge difference. 
So that's what haplotyping is all about. It's determining what mutations are insist on the same DNA uh, in order to uh, make associations biologically meaningful and in terms of systems biology, interpreting them in terms of what you know about regulatory elements and um, protein uh, elements. These haplotypes can be inferred indirectly from uh, diploid data from how alleles segregate um, in, in uh, small families or in, or in siblings and so forth. Or, easier to think about and, and probably more accurate in general, especially with limited data sets, is direct observation. Um, the most extreme direct observation is, is you pull out a DNA molecule that has, say, your promoter mutation and your putative uh, protein mutation, or just a series of linked uh, polymorphisms. By, cl by cloning out or otherwise physically isolating that DNA molecule, you can uh, sequence it and you can determine, what, by definition, if, they, if they're all in the same sequence, uh, one, then they're on the same molecule. But you have to be careful about the sequencing method that you're using there and the specific cloning or, and, or physical separation method. Because uh, there are certain methods where you can get a chimeric sequence, either due to kind of cloning of two species together or, or somehow misassembling them through bioinformatics. Um, you can also directly observe it when you go through uh, uh, the uh, genetic processes of, of mitosis, which we've talked about before, which is that as the cells divide, they split up their chromosomes, or meiosis, which is the process by which they get prepared for a combination, which we'll come back to in a little while. Okay. So when you do want to do it by linkage, you want to do a direct observation, and you want to, you need to you need to have uh, the best way to, to follow the haplotype is if there is a difference at every position um, in in both the parents and the child and the child inherits um, those differences, then it's called informative. If, if the parents happen to share a single nucleotide polymorphism, um, even though the child is a heterozygote for one of them, it could be that the, that the parents uh, have additional alleles that can confuse things, and it's not informative. But the point is, if you have enough single nucleotide polymorphisms, you can do a case control study where you have lots of uh, children that are affected for whatever trait you're interested in, and hopefully a close to equal number, which are in the control group, which do not have it. An example of that, and I'm just trying to give you a flavor for this and where to look rather than to completely empower you on this because that would be an entire separate course. But you can look for association um, and you have to worry about things like structure and admixture where you've had populations that have developed independently in different parts of the world and developed, you know, have been randomly mixing, um, which is part of the model uh, in these separate populations. But then you bring them together very recently and now it looks like uh, now it's no longer fair to model it as if it were uh, a, a uniformly mixing population. And the, the null hypothesis, we'll refer uh, throughout the course to the null hypothesis, which is the, the, the uh, thing that you're, trying, that you're trying to rule out and the probability refers to the, the probability that you can reject this null hypothesis. And in this case, you're trying to reject that the allele frequencies in the candidate locus, whatever you picked, um, do not depend on the phenotype within the subpopulations. And that's the way that they deal with these case studies. Now, what are some of the motivations for studying uh, 
either individual polymorphisms or haplotypes. Combinations of polymorphisms can affect the activity of a protein. Now, I could use hundreds of different examples of well-established and useful um, examples. But here's one that, that, that hopefully will hit uh, a resonant, resonating chord in the sense that these are actually used now in certain clinical settings um, and certainly in clinical research to, to uh, ask whether a patient population, either in the process of developing a new drug or using an established drug to keep the uh, patient um, toxicity and uh, down and the effectiveness up. And so in the far uh, left-hand column is the gene or enzyme affected, and in the middle is are examples of drugs which interact with this enzyme, and then the quantitative effect is in the far right-hand side. And these, uh, for example, thiopurine methyltransferase is something which if you have a large amount of the activity, whether you have, a, you say, the, uh, a very active enzyme and or a very active promoter element that causes high levels of it, then these various chemotherapeutics that are used for fighting cancers um, need to be, a, the amount of them needs to be adjusted. So you have lots of the methyltransferase. That means you have to give lots of the drug or else you will ha your drug study will fail or your, or your patient will succumb to cancer because it's ineffective. You haven't added enough to the, the uh, uh, thiopurine methyltransferase is, uh, <coughs> is overcoming the drug. So when you, on the other hand, if you have very low levels of it, then you want to give extra dose of it. Uh, sorry, if you have very low levels of the modifying enzyme, you want to lower the dose or else you'll have uh, uh, toxicity. Okay? So that's an example uh, that's actually being used in clinical situations where you can use the information um, to adjust drug levels, or to stratify your patient population so that you put patients into different classes um, or exclude them from the study altogether because you know that the drug will have some bad effect. And this increases, hopefully decreases the cost. On the downside to pharmaceutical development, if you do stratify your patient population and you make it through the drug study with that caveat, then the FDA will require that, that you put that proviso in, and that makes the, the size of the population that will be buying the drug smaller, which makes the, since the costs of developing the drug are fairly fixed, um, it decreases the profit. Now, uh, I've pointed out that there may be a very large number of rare single nucleotide polymorphisms, but in terms of common ones, there's you know, we're getting pretty close to saturating the common ones. Now these, and their databases of these, just like their databases of almost everything you can imagine, some of them better than others. Uh, the, uh, the common ones will, of course, be the ones that tend, either are neutral with respect to their phenotypic effect. That is to say, they, it doesn't really matter whether they're uh, one common allele or the other one. You know, the one allele might be at 30% and the other one is 70%, but they're both fairly neutral with respect to function. Or it could be that they both um, provide uh, different advantages in different scenarios. Or the heterozygote, where you have one over the other, provides some advantage, and that's kept it in the population. 
but it's unlikely that they're highly deleterious because the highly deleterious alleles are going to be rare, they're going to be selected against, and we're going to fully model that in just a moment. Now, let's say that we could uh, somehow, anybody who wanted their genome could have their genome tomorrow. You could have your complete genome sequence. How would you then, as computational biologists, um, prioritize those single nucleotide polymorphisms you find in there relative to the whole genome sequence, which is in GenBank. Now, this would be an excellent project for you to do for the term project. Um, but what you might say, first of all, uh, uh, well, actually, anybody, what, what, what single nucleotide polymorphisms would you throw out, for example, or put low on your priority list, or which ones would you put high on your priority list? Okay, Lent introns. Okay. Maybe I mean, this is a very simplistic thing to say, but I guess it's a first order jump that maybe they don't matter if they're different from one another. Okay. Um, no, uh, it, it, that's fine. I mean, you could, you, everybody has their own pet part of the genome they don't like. Introns almost sunk the genome project. They said, why are we going to sequence the 98% of the genome that doesn't code for proteins? Fortunately, we went ahead and sequenced it anyway. Another th favorite thing that people mentioned that is, is repetitive DNA. That was another part of the genome. They didn't actually sequence it from Drosophila, uh, the repetitive DNA. Uh, and, uh, and it's considered uh, also not protein coding. And, uh, and, I, and I'm going to give you a couple examples as we go through here to illustrate other points, but also to illustrate that repetitive regions that are not in protein coding regions, whether they're introns or other non-coding regions, can be important. And here's an example. This is one of the most repetitive elements in the human genome. It's called an ALU repeat. As, you, as you, those of you who have done bioinformatics before realize that it's the bane of our existence uh, in terms of assembling and searching and so forth. But it, here's an example of a single base mutation in this repeat. There's about 500,000 copies of the human genome scattered about. It's called an interspersed repeat as a consequence. And this A to G transition is found upstream from the myeloperoxidase enzyme encoding gene. It is, uh, so how do we find out whether this is important in any sense? First of all, the observation is that it is associated with uh, several fold less transcriptional activity. Um, it, it, that particular position creates binding sites, or creates or destroys binding sites for these um, transcription elements, and that might be the reason that it has lower transcriptional activity. And finally, it is overrepresented in uh, a particular type of cancer. And we're going to go through the, the ways that we, that we take an observation like a polymorphism, move to an association, like here with cancer, then take it to a mechanism, such as here with the transcriptional uh, regulators. I mean, I think that's, that's what this is about. It's not sufficient to observe the polymorphism. You can't say a priori whether it's important or not, whether it's, it's the allele repeats are not conserved. That's another thing that people say. Throw out all the non-conserved uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms. It's not conserved, it's not present in mouse, for example, uh, it's non-coding and it's repetitive. Now, in addition to the types of mutations, we have the modes of inheritance. That is to say, the different ways in which um, 
uh, a change, a polymorphism can be transmitted. And I, and I include this kind of to broaden your perspective rather than getting ent entirely fixated on the three million DNA SNPs. Let's broaden the discussion here a little bit. You can have not only DNA polymorphisms, but you can have RNA polymorphisms, which are heritable. For example, and I use this as an extreme case, RNAi, 22 nucleotide or so, probably a variety of mechanisms. Uh, RNA, can, bits of RNA can uh, be induced in various ways. And once induced, they can, they can uh, replicate essentially within a cell and between cells, they can spread throughout an organism and probably be, be uh, propagated over generations between uh, different generations of organisms. So this is heritable, um, uh, and you can consider it an epigenetic or genetic polymorphism depending on the nomenclature that you adopt. Even a protein conformation can be considered a polymorphism that is heritable. The central dogma tells us this protein is encoded by a nucleic acid, and that there certainly is still the case, even the, these heritable uh, polymorphisms of proteins. But it has a different conformation, and that conformation recruits other conformations, and so, and so is inherited not only within a cell, but between cells and between organisms, and is the causation of things like mad cow disease, and so on. Um, and finally, uh, modifications of biopolymers, such as uh, methylation, can occur, and this is not formally a DNA sequence change, but it is uh, either a, it's a, it's a heritable change um, that can uh, have very significant effects on things like cancer and uh, other and gene expression in general. Okay, now that's these are not these is a broadening of the definition of polymorphisms, and now let's talk in. Uh, uh, thoroughly about the different of the ways that it can be inher inherited as horizontal or vertical. Okay, horizontal typically means b between species. But in a certain sense, it could be, it could reflect some of the things that are going on here with RNA and protein uh, inheritance in the sense that it is being horizontally transmitted between different cells within the same organism. But generally, it's, it's, uh, it's a mechanism that does not involve mitosis or meiosis of, of the nuclear or, or organellar genomes. And this, the natural processes are transduction and transformation uh, being distinguished, but transduction typically involves a, a viral or protein coat for the nucleic acid, and transformation involves something closer to naked nucleic acids. Transgenic is uh, a completely laboratory-based version of, of these two more natural um, methods. I think vertical we've already talked about. This is what we normally think of inheritance rather than horizontal. We, we saw in the, in the tree of life is very common, even in the late branches and the early branches. Vertical, though, is what we normally think about when we're doing crosses uh, in the laboratory. Some of these are maternally inherited, like mitochondria and chloroplasts, um, but it's still the same kind of process, mitosis, uh, segregation of DNA. Okay, so now we've got types of mutations. We want to talk about mutation, drift, and selection as the main source of uh, the frequencies that we, that we find in populations. We want to know where do allele frequencies come from. And I will maintain that, that generally speaking, in almost all living systems, whether they're cells from organisms, uh, 
that are mutating or whole organisms, uh, whether they do recombination or not, they will do mutation selection and drift. Now, to develop a fairly rigorous model here, uh, yet simple, we have some assumptions. We always have assumptions in models. If people tell you that there are no assumptions, then you need to, you need to dig a little further. The, con the, the assumptions that we'll make here for a little while, and, and then I'll give you an, a nice example that undermine them all, but it's constant population size n. Um, that you have random mating. Remember, we were talking about admixture before. You have every, every, every member of the population can randomly mate. That they're non-overlapping generations. This is a convenience. Um, we are not making any assumptions about the population allele frequencies being at equilibrium. This is something those of you who have taken biology courses with uh, Hardy Weinberg makes that assumption. Here, this is a much more general model. It includes non-equilibrium, and equilibrium can be a, a special case. So this is relatively minor uh, non-assumption. Uh, but, but we are assuming that we do not have an infinite number of alleles nor an infinite number of uh, population size. Okay, so now ignore everything on this slide but the upper left-hand corner of uh, <coughs> slide 15 here. Is, this should look familiar. This should look somewhat like the uh, logistic map where we had the incremental, exponent, slow exponential increase of one allele in a population over another or one organism over another based on the different selection coefficients of those organisms. And, you know, this could be a very small difference. Say a 1% increase per generation will, uh, will dominate after a thousand generations or so, um, quite definitely. And so that's what you're seeing, the exponential curve, and then it plateaus um, as it gets uh, to 100% allele frequency. That, that's the full range on the vertical axis is 0 to 100% wheel frequency, and generation goes from uh, 0 to uh, 1,400. Now, what it actually represents in this particular case is closely related, a little more complicated than just one allele replacing another, because here we have um, diploids. That is to say, not a haploid that just has one allele, like in the, in the bacterial species that we've kind of implicitly been talking about. But you can have here now three combinations of alleles. You can have, say, the the reference uh, uh, genotype of, of capital A, capital A, which we just call 100% uh, of fitness. So we have fitness and selection coefficient, which are interchangeable terms that are very trivial mathematical relationship bet uh, between them. So we'll use W and S um, in different contexts here, just as population geneticists do. And you can have big A, big A, little a, little a, and big A, little a as the heterozygote. And we're assuming an additive model here where you get a little more selection with one allele of little a and then two alleles of little a results in 2s, 1 plus 2s. And, uh, and this has a, a very similar curve to uh, the logistic map if you had uh, simple allele replacement. On the other hand, and, and what you tend to have in this population, since a thousand generations in the big scheme of things, it may seem like a lot to you, but the uh, big scheme, it's, it's a very short period of time. And so you tend to have alleles at frequency of zero and uh, 100%. On the other hand, if you have overdominant mode, where the heterozygote has the highest fitness of the three possibilities, where one plus S 
is larger than 1 or 1 plus t. Um, then you aim for equilibrium. Whether you're aim starting at close to 0% or close to 100%, the allele frequency will converge on some equilibrium point, um, in this case, somewhere around um, 0.6 to 0.4. 0.6 for one allele and 0.4 for the other. And it could be anywhere. It depends on the relative fitnesses S and T. Okay. This is just a reminder slide, combining two slides from before, just to connect. The, that slide connects the logistic map from lecture one to uh, the selection coefficients we've been talking about in lecture two to the, the, the diploids that we're mainly talking about in this lecture because humans are diploids. And here's just to just connect this um, to the fact that the selection coefficients S, or the fitness W, is um, relevant to different environments and the different times that organisms spend in those different environments. And all mutants are tagged by their DNA, and they're pooled, and they're selected, and you can read them out in a variety of methods. So now let's dig down into where the allele frequencies come from based on... Uh, Mutation, migration, and selection, I'm oh, sorry, mutation or migration, which we'll lump together here as M, selection and drift. Now, the <coughs> mutation will have a forward rate constant and a reverse. This, is, this should remind you of the conversation we just had about uh, the different kinds of alleles, the duplications and deletions, how they can have different uh, rates. Um, if they're tandem duplication, then that has a great tendency to delete. Um, if it deletes down to a single uh, repeat, there's now no longer any repeat, and so the chance of generating the exact duplicate is low. So the, the forward and reverse here, the frequency of forward and reverse mutation is represented by F and R, respectively. Now, what we'll see, we're going to walk through this, starting with a, a frequency T sub I, for where uh, I is the... Uh, uh, number of mutants in a population size n. So here on, uh, uh, down at the bottom is i mutants in a population size n. And we'll see that applying the mutation, applying the selection, and applying the drift are all applications of binomial distributions when we're talking about this discrete population of n individuals. It makes, remember the, the three bell-shaped curves, we, or curves that can be bell-shaped. Uh, uh, here is clearly a discrete uh, population because we have n individuals taking i mutants at a time. So we have so the binomials that we'll be using all th all three processes have the same form where you have a combination of of some population n and a subpopulation i. And of course, the, the, the remainder is n minus i. And that comp the different combinations are times some probability. This probability is the uh, is the last parameter in the binomial here, which a binomial is a function of the n, i, and p, the population size, subpopulation size, and some frequency. It can be either a forward or reverse mutation frequency, it can be a selection uh, probability, or it can be a drift probability, and we'll see how each of these work out. So let's, we start with a, a frequency of i, you can have i ranges from 0 to n. You could have uh, if i is uh, 0, then the frequency is 0 over n or 0. If i is n, it's n over n, or frequency is 100%. Just that same vertical axis we had on all previous slides. The, the starting frequencies have some distribution, t, 
T sub i for i going from one, 0 to n. And we want, now we want to derive a new uh, vector of frequencies, which would be m. And all we do is we apply the binomial distribution for the forward process of forward mutation. And then once we're done with that, we apply, uh, we now use the, new, the m's and adjust it so that it's now give it a chance to do the reverse mutation because you'll generate this binomial distribution of forwards and then you'll give them a chance to, to revert. Um, then you apply selection. A new binomial, uh, now here the probability of a transition from uh, your mutants, starting with T, then you go to M. Now to get to S, the pro transition probability is a function of this fitness. Remember W and S, fitness and selection. Um, here, uh, the, the fitness determines the probability of a transition in a, in a, in a binomial distribution. And there's, there's two slightly different e uh, equations that you use depending on whether the fitness is uh, greater than one or less than one. In other words, whether it has a tendency to increase um, with time due to selection or to decrease that allele with time as a function of selection. And then th that's what these two cases are here. And then finally, you have, after you've applied forward and inverse mutation and selection, whether it's more fit or less fit, than the, um, then you apply drift. Now, drift just means that uh, if you have a small population, think of it, if you have a small population of, of uh, individuals, let's say they're, you know, a set of colored balls in a jar in front of us here. If it's a small number and I pull a handful out, because in each generation you're going to, you're going to, duplicate the population, but we remember the assumption of constant population size. If I pull out the new generation and forget about the, the rest of the duplicated, they could all be the same color. And that's the chance that you could drift to fixation, where one of them uh, now dominates, not because it's superior from a selection standpoint, not because it's been uh, you know, mutated in a directed way to that point, but be just because of random drift, that you have a constant population and... Uh, and, you, and so you can see how that would depend on how many are in the, in the, in the jar. If I take half of them out of the jar and the, and the jar only has five in it, then it's a high, much higher chance that we'll go to fixation quickly than if the jar has millions in it. If I take half, of, half a million out, it's very likely that it will still be this, more or less the same ratios. And this is exactly how it plays out when you look at um, random genetic drift. It's very dependent on population size. So here, here are simulations going out to, say, 150 generations on the horizontal axis. And the allele frequency, as usual, going from 0 to 100%. And they, they, we start with a population with 50-50 ratio of two alleles. Um, and what you see is if the population, the number of individuals, is only 25, then you quickly fix, maybe in a few generations, maybe tw uh, 30 generations, you can, and this, this is anecdotal, uh, get fixation. Uh, as it goes up to a population size of 2,500, you can see it, for all intents and purposes, it's flat. It will eventually fix. I assure you, this simulation, if you run it long enough, it'll, it, one of the two alleles will go to zero and the other one will go to 100%. And you do another simulation and it may be the other one because this is random drift, not selection. Uh, so you can see the final frequencies are going to be some complicated function of mutation rates and selection rates and drift rates, and, pop, which, and that last one is a function of population size. When the, drift, when the population size is very, very large, 
you can see that's going to be constant enough. That's why you can see very subtle differences in selection coefficients. Okay. Now, we're going to come back to the mutation, selection, and drift in the context of human genetics in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you the last uh, uh, component of population genetics um, that we'll be talking about, which is recombination. Now, this doesn't occur in every biological system. I made the argument before that the mutation, selection, and drift occurs in every biological system, from cells to organisms of all types. Those that... In those biological systems where DNA can be exchanged by transduction, transformation, uh, uh, meiotic fusion, and so forth, um, then you can get recombination. And these two figures illustrate that. On the left-hand side of slide 19 is the uh, non-recombination scenario, and on the right-hand side is, this, is the sexual or recombination-mediated uh, gene um, change in gene combinations. So let's look at this. Time is going horizontally, and you can see at the very, very left-hand side, the beginning of each of these scenarios, you get uh, a certain rate of occurrence of mutations. This is based on the forward mutation rate in our previous um, equations. And they occur very early on. A, B, and C all occur. But they tend to die out because of, because of drift. Okay. And the population size is small enough that this is about that, that half of them die out, and one of them fixes. Okay, and A is destined to fix, but it takes some time for it to fix. And until it's, uh, you know, a huge, fra it starts out at a frequency close to zero, and by the time it's 50% to 100%, it's ready to start picking up a second mutation at the same frequency they were occurring before. And now you can pick up the B mutation while the C dies off. You know, it comes and goes due to drift. And then finally, once AB fixes, then you can pick up the C and you get ABC. That was a long, slow, serial process. On the right-hand side, we see the, the, what can happen in the, in the case of, of exchange of genetic material in a, in a freely mixing population. It's now that A, B, and C all occur uh, at the same frequency as on the left. But now, because they're exchanging information, very early on, before B has a chance to die off due to drift, it combines its DNA with A, and you get AB, and some of the small A populations, just is destined to be fixed anyway, but happens to combine with <coughs> C, and again, before, before uh, uh, drift can wipe them out, uh, selection, the very small selection that you have that couldn't overcome drift in the, in the left-hand panel, now fixes them all, the really favorable combination of A, B, and C, very early on. And so there is, there's a whole series of arguments and counterarguments in the population genetics literature about why is there sex. Of course, you know, we all know uh, we have our own reasons, but, but in here they say there's a huge cost. The, count, the counterargument is there's a, there's a huge cost of having two genders, uh, maybe as much as 50% possibly higher, um, uh, because they, don't, they, have, uh, they have different morphologies and different capabilities and so on. Uh, but then there's this benefit. This is the risk, and the benefit is the earlier recombination. But then there's counterarguments and so forth that, that we won't go into. Uh, yeah? Going back to drift, what, if drift is actually random, what is it that causes either a real fix? If you have two different alleles, why, if I start approaching zero for one allele, why wouldn't it just eventually by random chance come back 
Well, it, it, it can. You can see here uh, that it's, it's starting to head so that it's fixing uh, on, on one allele and it changes direction and it fixes the other one. So it can, it can go all the way down to, 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 to close to zero and then bounce back up. And it's all, this is just some typical simulations here. Uh, if you do enough of these, you'll find every possible behavior. Um, it's you were saying basically eventually, if you give it enough time, it will fix. It will fix. You can't necessarily predict which one will fix on. Half, you know, if, if there's no selection, half the time it will fix on one, half on the other if they start out at a frequency of 50-50. Um, but you have to think of it in the context of mutation and selection, too, because they're all acting there. And when you say that something is selectively neutral, what you really mean, I mean, everything has some very, very, very tiny selective coefficient. But if that is, if it's tiny enough, then drift, and the population size is small enough, then drift will blind you and you can't see it. But if you get really big populations, then you'll get small drift and then you'll see subtle, more subtle selection. Um, you know, the human population is very large. Um, some of the oceanic species are truly enormous. So you, you need to think about that as a possibility. So now let's talk about common diseases. We have, the question is, uh, are common diseases really, to what extent are they caused by common variants? Clearly some of them are caused by common variants. And we've said that, well, common variants really shouldn't be deleterious um, because they would be wiped out by selection. Uh, they, they could be very, very mildly deleterious such that drift will uh, cause them to get fixated or persist. But they really, they can't be uh, really noticeably. They, they, you know, selection coefficients of 10 to the minus 4, very, very tiny effects, can be uh, wiped out in, in populations, uh, sort of normal size populations. So, uh, here are three examples of common variants that almost certainly are associated with common diseases. So why are these special cases, rather than, the, in my opinion, rather than the general case? ApoE4, I already alluded to, is associated with Alzheimer's dementia. It's involved in uh, lipid transport and metabolism. And this particular allele, the, the, uh, the E4 allele, is uh, present at 20% in humans. About 80% is the, is the other allele, the most, second most common allele is the E3 allele. Uh, and so you might say, well, this, this bad allele, this E4, is... Uh, it, you know, it's the one that should be present in the common ancestors of humans. Uh, it should be, the, it, uh, sorry, the E3, the good one, should be present in the common ancestors. And this E4 is a recent aberration. Um, it's, it's somehow getting into human population. But actually, the E4 is the ancestral one, um, presumably due to some difference in diet or some other uh, selective effects. Uh, the E4, which is currently bad for us, we think, um, was really good for some of our um, uh, related <coughs> species. And so we need to think very carefully before we um, do anything drastic about eliminating this allele from, say, the human population. Um, hemoglobin sickle cell, uh, the sickle cell allele, um, is probably the, the oldest and most famous of the uh, molecularly characterized alleles. Uh, Zuckerland and Pauling made this famous uh, many decades ago. And it exists in 17% of the human population. And uh, this is uh, responsible for 
oxygen transport in red blood cells. And we saw, you saw in one of the earlier slides today, those sickled shaped cells which have a huge effect on the hemodynamics of the red blood cell. Well, another red blood cell component, an enzyme, G6PD, which is involved in maintaining the redox function in the cell, um, is as high as 40%. The, the mutant, whichever one you want, they're so close to 50%, they're just, they're just two alleles, um, and one of them is a deleterious in a certain sense, um, a biochemical sense, but both of these have a, a heterozygote advantage in being malarial resistant. And so probably that's the reason that it's common in the population. And this uh, is well, probably proving to be the rule that, that, that these are examples of that convergence that we saw in the case of balanced polymorphisms where the heterozygote has some advantage and so you get a balanced point rather than one or the other dominating through the drift or selection. And a third example is, which we will develop in much more detail, um, in CCR5, there's a deletion of 32 base pairs, which confers resistance to one of the greatest plagues in the history of uh, the human race, which is uh, to, to the AIDS virus. And its frequency is 9% in Caucasians. I think we wish that it were 100% uh, when we worry about HIV, but we need to wonder why it's not 100%. There may be some other uh, reason for it uh, being a non-deleted version um, in so many humans, and we need to understand that. And as far as I know, we don't understand that. Okay. Now, uh, this is the last slide before the break. I want to now, I, I promised you that, that we would take that simple mathematical treatment of mutation, selection, and drift and show that it actually has some impact uh, that is actually used in, uh, in human genetics. Now, I must uh, warn you that, that, that this is not uh, a consensus view. This is a view that I find appealing in slide 21 that uh, John Pritchard uh, has, has authored, um, and he titled it uh, uh, in a uh, provocative way, Are Rare Variants Responsible for Susceptibility to Complex Diseases? And uh, this is a quote, that cust it's customary and theoretical work relating to complex diseases, um, that, that the allele frequencies are treated as parameters of the model. And, and typically in models, you'll have uh, derived uh, values and parameters which are input. They're things that, you, that the user is expected to provide. And, and you don't want to have to be guessing at allele frequencies and having those parameters. So what's new here is that, that using an evolutionary process, which includes, you guessed it, selection, mutation, and genetic drift, they can, we can learn, or as they model, the underlying allele frequencies. They can be derived rather than being required as an input. And so I think that this, this um, and this is illustrated here um, with uh, a model which, which, you know, this is <coughs> entirely theoretical, but it is based, the parameters that are used are based on uh, some genetic studies that have been done, for example, on autism. And so let me just define some of the terms here. We have this risk ratio is related in a certain sense to the selection and fitness coefficients we were talking about before. Now, selection and fitness coefficients refer to reproductive fitness. And in human genetics, we're much more, we're, 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 we have broader interests into all sorts of things that, that 
either don't affect reproductive fitness or, or we don't know how it affects reproductive fitness, but it affects some kind of medical or just, uh, you know, just some trait of interest. In this case, um, the, the risk ratio replaces the selection coefficient, and this is basically saying <coughs> my brother or sister has autism, if, if they did, then I would have a 75-fold higher chance of having it than uh, someone selected randomly from the same population as I come from. So this 70-fold increase is a very high um, uh, heritability uh, for this particular uh, example. Also in this example, uh, through some genetics we won't discuss, it, it seemed reasonable that the number of loci involved might be much great, you know, might be a large number on the order of 100 or so. And you can think that a lot of common diseases, when you start listing the, 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 the well-characterized ones, when you start listing the number of genes, genes that are either known or plausible, like cancer or, uh, you know, walking down the street or whatever, these really complicated traits uh, involve a very large number of uh, cell types, a large number of cell components, and hence a large number of genes. So here they've assumed a model with 100 loci, 100 different genes, um, and they have multiplicative effects of the, of the polymorphisms in those genes between loci. That is to say, you need to have gene 1 working and gene 2 and gene 3, so that's multiplicative. But then the polymorphisms you introduce into a gene, you can think there are a lot of genes involved and there are a lot of different positions within the gene that can be involved, and each of those is additive. You have a, a little uh, reduction in activity due to first mutation and then a second mutation, a third. Each of those is a, this or this or this or this, and so that's an additive effect. And so they, they have very you know, historical justification for having additive penetrance within the gene and multiplicative um, across different loci, different genes in the genome. Now, for these 100 loci, there will be a top five, five that affect the uh, relative risk the most, and that's what's been plotted here, um, where we have uh, uh, the zero curve, you see, is in the, in the absence of any of these... Um, multiplicative effects. This is as if you had no loci that were affecting the frequency of susceptibility alleles. And so, as in most uh, unselective um, populations, you'll have uh, somewhere, you'll have mo most of the alleles being either at zero frequency or 100%, basically the zero representing, you know, the absence of the, the, the other, the alternatives, the 100% that's there. But if you have this, this, uh, <coughs> These, uh, these top five loci out of 100 that contribute to the risk ratio, then those are represented by these four curves, which, which say this frequency of susceptibility alleles, which range along the horizontal axis now from 0 to 100%, have what he calls a probability density. I mean, it's, it's clearly not a probability density because it's not going to integrate to 1. But it here it's the, it's the probability, uh, the, sort of the histogram of risk ratios. So let's take a break and uh, we'll pick up uh, on, uh, on an exact, uh, uh, we'll go drill down on the association study in a very interesting case. Anybody who, any uh, problem sets to hand in can put them here during the break.
So I understand about modeling mutation selection. 